Well, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Sometimes when there's a, a new preacher comes along and he's preaching maybe for the first or second time, in his nerves he hangs onto the pulpit uh, because he's nervous. Uh, I'm going to be hanging onto the pulpit in my notes this morning, but it's not because I'm nervous, <laughs> although I'm a little nervous, but not, not too nervous. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we uh, read down to, we read the whole chapter last week, but we thought really down to the end of verse 25, the first six days of creation, and uh, today I want to look at uh, the creation of man on that sixth day, and some of the implications of it, so I want to read to you from uh, verse 26 uh, down to the end of the chapter. So the sixth day... Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what we've seen so far in this first book of the Bible, in this first chapter, is that God is the foundational assumption of the Bible. Verse 1, in the beginning, God. So that's the foundational assumption. That's where we start. And it's this God who has made all things by his word. And at the end of his making of everything, he said... It was good. And at the very end of everything, he says, it was very good. And so far, we've got as far as the creation of the animal kingdom, as it were, uh, halfway through day six. Today, we're going to look at the, the last part of day six, the creation of man. And what marks him out as being different from the rest of creation, that he bears the image of God. Indeed, he is the image of God. And I want to look at three things this morning. Uh, firstly, to think about the act of creation and its some of its implications. Then I want to ask the question, what does it mean to have the image of God? And then thirdly, what does this image of God look like in practice? In other words, how does it affect uh, man's, mankind's place on the earth that God has made? And all we can see in all of these questions, in the midst of this gale this morning, <laughs> what's happened? <laughs> now all of these questions 
are intensely relevant to us today. And for those of us who are Christians, we have to think through some of the, there are some social and political issues that this passage raises for us that we need to be able to think through. So first of all, this morning, I want to just think about this act of creation. And uh, the creation of man is described in chapters 1 and 2. And so in chapter 1, there's a general description. And then in chapter 2, there's something of a more intimate and personal description. And so in chapter 1, it's described here in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make uh, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now I'll come to the idea of image in a minute, but I just want to say a few things about the act of creation itself. The first is simply to say that man was created. Man was made. Man was formed by God. And what that means is, there was a first man and a first woman, which of course immediately puts us in collision course with the culture around us. Uh, The prevailing cultural view is, of course, that uh, man, uh, human beings emerge through a long sequence of interactions of carbon-based chemical components that were then able to organize themselves in ever-increasing levels of complexity until one day human beings emerged. Now, whether you may think about that, it is clear that that view is incompatible with the idea of an historical Adam and Eve who were created by divine intervention. And that's important for a couple of reasons. One is simply that, as, as we thought last time, if God is God, as we believe he must be, and he is, then God can create as he pleases that he is not limited in how he creates. And if he has told us that he is created in this way, then we should trust him that indeed he has. And the second reason that it's important is because the whole New Testament description of the gospel of Jesus Christ depends on the truth of the existence of an historical Adam. Luke evidently believed in it. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, he speaks of Adam as at the end of that genealogical list, working from Jesus way way back, right back to Adam, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus himself believed it as he gave his teaching in Mark chapter 10 and other places. And he refers to verses 26 and 27 uh, in teaching about marriage. Or the apostles themselves, they believed in it. Uh, Acts 17.26 tells us that uh, God made one man. So Paul is speaking to the Athenian philosophers and he says, This God has made one man and from one man he made many nations. And so the apostle Paul believes in an historical Adam. But as we go back to... As we think about this, as we go back to what we said in the first sermon in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, explaining our existence in terms of God and his creative power is the only view that makes sense of the world that we live in. If you have a materialistic 
and empirical worldview, and I mean that philosophically, I don't mean just like you like lots of stuff in your life. When I say materialistic, you you believe that the universe is all that you can see and touch and feel and measure and experience, and empirical is what you can measure and write down. If you believe that, then that scientific worldview cannot answer all the questions that we could ask. And it's not simply that we haven't uh, looked in the right places. It's a philosophical uh, constraint of a scientific worldview. It simply doesn't have the tools in place to be able to answer those questions. The only place you can find the tools to answer the big questions of our life and our existence and our meaning and our purpose and so on is when you start with that fundamental assumption that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God exists. And so that's where I want to uh, to leave you. So, that, so the first thing is that God created the universe. The second thing is, God created them male and female. God created man, he created them male and female. So the Bible doesn't suggest, for example, that uh, maleness evolves from femaleness, as modern scientists think. But right from the start, men and women are made separately. Um, Yes, uh, Eve came from Adam, in a sense, but uh, they are distinct. And there was a time when it was not necessary to say this, even in my time as a minister, but it has to be said now that... But I need to say this, that being made male and female is, of course, an objective truth about the nature of human beings. That as created people, people are either male or female. Yes, there is the corruption of the world that leads to certain uh, intersex conditions that may deviate from this, but accepting those, the fundamental position is the same, that there are basically just two sexes, male and female. And of course, again, that brings us into conflict with certain modern ideological beliefs. That gender is what you feel you are. This is where, in our day-to-day, because we have abandoned the concept of absolute truth, and truth is what you make of it, truth becomes relative, and, uh, you know, so a recently, a very uh, well-known interview took place between two very well-known people, uh, and... uh, the interviewee was asked, "You give your, you, will you tell us your truth rather than the truth? And this is the, the way that people think. So this subjective idea of truth is present um, everywhere. And uh, and it contrasts with the objective view of what human beings are as male and female which is an objective truth. You can detect it from the chromosomes that make up our bodies. But with all of that conflict, again, we need to trust God that what he is telling us is true of us. That he, male and female, he created them. And these are objective truths. So the third thing about creation is that because there was a first couple, all people are descended from Adam and Eve. And this is more important, perhaps, than we might think. Because it shows us this. 
but the human race is just that. It is one race. There are not many human races. And all the problems that we see between people of different ethnic backgrounds today come about because of the sinful neglect of this great biblical doctrine. We always need to remember that biblically there is only one race descended from Adam and Eve. So that's all I'm going to say about the act of creation. Uh, Let me move on now to how the Bible sees mankind as being made in the image of God. So what is this image of God that mankind has? Uh, We find this in verse uh, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then God does it in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean, the image of God? Does it mean it physically? You know, we have arms and legs and eyes and noses and ears. Uh, And does that mean that God is like that? And and we're made like God in that way? Well, no, uh, that's not the way it is at all. Uh, The Bible tells us that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Yes, he took a body. He became flesh. Uh, God the Son took flesh when he became incarnate. And Jesus Christ came into the world. But in his divine nature, he does not have a body. He is spirit. So that can't be, our physical form can't be the image of God. Is the image of God then man's soul? So so sometimes we think in terms of uh, human beings have a body and a soul. Maybe it's the soul part of us that is the image of God, that immaterial part of us. Well, that idea owes more to Greek philosophy than it does to Christian theology and biblical theology. Because the Greeks separated the spiritual from the physical. And so the physical is evil and the the spiritual is good. But that's not what the Bible uh, says to us. Now there are other suggestions that people have made. And there's a great deal to think about in all of these things. To do with the uniqueness of mankind compared to other creatures. But what the Bible does do is that it focuses particularly, when it thinks of, thinking about the image of God, it thinks about certain particular ethical virtues. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that these three things, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And this becomes clear when you see how it is that God is seeking to restore mankind uh, and restore his image in salvation. So if you turn, for example, to Colossians chapter 3, and I realise it's difficult in the, in the winds this morning, but Paul is talking about the Christian life, and uh, he says this in verse 9, uh, Colossians 3 9 Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So knowledge becomes a, a renewed feature of the Christian life. You begin to know things that you didn't know before. And in a similar passage in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Uh, Paul says uh, a similar thing in verse 22. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here we have three things that are being restored as God works his salvation in individuals. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And that means that as somebody is saved, they come into a new knowledge about God. And it changes how they see the universe, and how they see their lives, and how they see everything. They know God. Righteousness is renewed. Yes, we receive the righteousness of Christ... As a gift, his righteousness covers our righteousness, but we are also transformed in how we live in obedience to God's law. And so righteousness begins to be restored in our lives. And then holiness is renewed. And this is all about our consecration to God. This is about our devotion to God. That human beings are made for God, and when we are saved, uh, that image of God is restored in this aspect that we are now consecrated to God I keep losing my place because of the wind well done but we see in Adam and Eve of course that these three things are present when they are made but they know they know God they're born to know God I seem to have a verb on but they're born to know God they are born in righteousness because they start. They are doing all the things that God wants them to do, and they are utterly devoted to God. They are devoted to Him. Now, how is that an image of God? How is how is God? How does He display all of these things? Well, God knows all things, doesn't He? He is full of knowledge. There's nothing that He does not know. He knows Himself perfectly. And exhaustively. He knows his whole creation perfectly and exhaustively. So he is full of knowledge. He is perfectly righteous. All that he does is good. And he is holy in himself. And to understand what, he, what we mean by him being holy in himself, you need to understand and remember that he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the persons of the Holy Trinity are totally devoted to one another. And in that sense, he is totally holy. But if holiness means devotion and consecration. So you see, man is made in the image of God in these three virtues of knowledge, righteousness and holiness but then thirdly let me come to what the image of God is supposed to look like and a couple of things I just want to draw your attention to today and the first is this this whole idea of rule over creation these are quite strong words for mankind that he has dominion verses 26 and 28 that he is to subdue the earth and all that is in it in verse 28 and this word dominion means lordship man is given authority to rule over all the creatures that God has made and not only that but he is to subdue the earth 
in other words, to bring it under control. And if you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 15, you'll see that that involves work. God put man in the garden to work and to keep it. Now, some people really today balk at this idea. Uh, They look around at the world and they see what a mess that mankind has made of the world, and they'd be right. And there is a, a, a right concern for some aspects of the environmental damage that is caused by human beings. But let me remind you that God's plan was for man to to know God's mind, to worship him, to walk in his ways, and all of this before sin came into the world. Man was not to be marked by greed or ignorance or making his own rules, but was totally devoted to God. And so this situation of man having dominion and subduing the earth is a good thing. Fundamentally, it is a good thing. God made man to work hard at this job. And I'll say more about the implications of that in a moment. But rule, subjugation and hard rewarding work are all part of God's plans for human beings. But then, how, a second area in which uh, the image of God works uh, shows itself is in plurality. And it's reflected in the fact that male and female together bear the image of God. And this diversity of male and female reflects something in God himself. Uh, you, you may have noticed this little detail in the text where God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. Uh, you see there plurality hinted at linguistically. Let us make man in our image. But then in verse 29 he says, I have given you, he says to mankind, I have given you. There's unity. So here in these verses you see both diversity and unity in God himself. Now some have suggested that God is addressing other heavenly beings. But of course that would make them creators along with God. But the Bible doesn't say that anywhere else. So it can't be other heavenly beings. But what verse 26 does show us is that God has an inner life. That he has a relationship with himself. He is relational in himself. And again, that brings us back to the the comments we made about the Trinity uh, in the early parts of the chapter. That God is uh, the creator, that he is the spirit, that he is the word who creates. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. uh, Together showing the purest love and the greatest glory that exists. As these persons are totally devoted to one another. So it's no surprise then that God has made human beings complementary to each other and also to experience holiness and relationship to one another. And it's not simply in our manyness that we are many here this morning, but the fact that he made us as male and female and that in this male-female relationship there can be the most intimate of relationships, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And of course, Adam and Eve are the prototype of the marriage relationship for all human beings. And so the existence of marriage between a man and a woman is another way in which the image of God is displayed. 
I can't tell you just how important that is for our culture today. This is what we are up against, that there has been an attempt for decades now to to destroy the whole notion of marriage as it's biblically defined. So in summary then, all of this, in all of this, God declares that this is good, like all other creative acts. Not only that, but it was very good. The fact that he does that says something very important about the place of mankind in the created order, that man is the crowning glory of God's created order. It is in the very act of creating mankind that, that creation goes from being good to being very good. He alone, of all the creatures, bears the image of God. And glory is brought to God as mankind uh, rules, rules creation, subdues it, and does his work in it. As he lives in intimate married relationships of man to woman and protecting the children that emerge and f- follow in their footsteps under God. Let me just finish with a few words of implications for us today. And the first thing that we need to understand is that man needs to be restored. And this is done through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God. He was the perfect man. The one who came in perfect knowledge, righteousness and holiness. He came to save a people from the fallenness and brokenness and hopelessness of sin. And through faith in his saving work on the cross, men and women can have that image of God restored in them. Which works out in all kinds of ways. It works out in their marriages. It works out in communities as men and women are gathered into the church. So there's a number of implications for, uh, of that for us. Firstly, you'll only begin to make sense of your life as you properly relate to God. And we have seen that from this foundational assumption that the Bible begins with, that flows from creation. That you and I, we are made to relate to God. That you and I, we are given a special place in creation. Uh, We are not, as some scientists have said, a trousered ape, which I find quite an amusing description. We are not that. You are made as God's image bearer. You are made to walk with him. Secondly, when you receive the gospel, you begin to see your work as important. Now, that's really important for us as Christians, isn't it? Uh, Many people see work as a necessary evil they have to put up with. And so they, they have this idea and attitude that we work in order that we may play. But the Christian sees his or her work as satisfying because they're carrying out God's mandate to rule and subdue creation. Not just in terms of agriculture and manufacturing, but some of you are involved in other areas of life like finances or software or a civil servant working for the local government in education or or the tax office or something. But you're involved, all of you are involved in services that bring good order to life so that people can better carry out God's mandate that he has placed upon you. 
And so it's important to stress that work is seen as part of God's mandate is good and is a glorious and satisfying thing. And you will see it more and more as the gospel is part of your life. And then thirdly, we have an appreciation of the image of God as we believe the gospel leads people to love one another. That the image of God has this relational aspect. That if we love God, we will love his image and so we love people. Bearing his image is the rationale for the commands to love. It's what makes it seem like a good thing, a right thing, to love one another. And we only truly grasp this as we are restored through the gospel. Let me just give you a number of ways. Uh, In marriage, Adam and Eve were joined in that committed relationship. Marriage is the core human relationship. And when a person hears the gospel and responds to Christ, he or she begins to value his or her marriage. And that goes against the current trend today, doesn't it? But it works out in other ways as well. In the church, the church becomes a place where the image of God is being restored in the gospel. The image is expressed in love for one another. That as a church, we begin to love one another. And can I say to you, therefore... That uh, if you're the kind of person that says to me, I can be a Christian without meeting with the rest of the Christian church, then I say to you, you simply have not understood the implications of the gospel in your life. It may be that you are not actually a Christian. If you say that I can be a Christian and not go to be with other Christians, you've not truly grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then, of course, that love, that relational aspect works out into the world. Because Christians love people who are not Christian. They love even their enemies. Because they too are image bearers. They're broken, they're marred, they're in need of restoration through the gospel. And that love, of course, cannot but be shown without a desire also to lead people to Jesus Christ. To lead people to the gospel. There's so much that is good that is happening in the world to solve the world's social problems. But of course you need Christ to be saved. And if we're going to love our enemies, we need to bring the gospel to them. Friends, God has made us in his image. And he is restoring it to us in and through Jesus Christ. And when we are in his hands, then we will be changed. And as the wind dies down, let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, wonderful foundational chapter of the Bible. We pray that you would help us to see our place in your world, to see you as the maker and creator of it, and that uh, to see ourselves as bearing your image and all the implications that that entails. We pray, Father, you'd help us to love Uh, love you, love one another in the church and love our enemies we pray all this in Jesus name Amen